Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden. My guest today is Will Weinraub. Will is the CEO and co-founder of OnChain Studios, which is building Cryptoys. Cryptoys is a digital toy company that embraces different elements of Web3 innovation, from collectible NFTs to -to play-to-earn gaming. We discuss the evolution of Cryptoys, how kids are increasingly used to digital products, and have a really interesting discussion on the importance of different blockchains to build upon. Please enjoy my discussion with Will Weinraub. Will, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Good, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. So a year ago, you guys had just done your Series A round. You raised over $30 million, high-flying company in the Web3 space focused on toys, gaming. You announced a deal with Mattel. The wind's totally at your backs. It just seemed like everything was going right. Not to say that it isn't, but obviously we've entered a downturn or some sort of crypto winter. I'm curious for the brands that are participating in Web3 NFTs, and I think you're one of the experts to talk about this. What has the reaction or tone been from a year ago to today? For the most part, and this might be surprising to your listeners, it really hasn't changed much, quite honestly, as far as from a brand perspective. And with Cryptoys, the idea is to build the world's premier digital toy company. And we're talking about a lot of licensing partners. So a lot of brands that will come to us and we'll work with their IP and bring that to our platform. And for brands, actually, it's quite surprising because you would think that anything crypto related or blockchain related, they'd be completely allergic to, especially after what happened very publicly with FTX. All of a sudden, there's a negative narrative around crypto as a whole. But the brands that we've been talking to have been talking to a number of them for a few years now. They remain undeterred. There's still massive conviction in the space, more focused on what NFTs and digital assets and digital collectibles could mean for their brands versus thinking of it through a very specific cryptocurrency, broader crypto lens. A lot of the savvier brands are realizing that this fits into their consumer packaged goods strategy in a lot of ways. It fits into their merchandising strategy in a lot of ways. It's not necessarily anything that's combative to that. It's very additive. Blockchain is just a method of allowing them more levers to pull for additional revenue and additional deployments for those specific departments within those companies. So 
I've been pleasantly surprised. A lot of the brands that had conviction in the space early on are undeterred by a lot of the macro conditions. And I think that bodes well for the whole space as we come out of this downturn. You mentioned how Cryptoys works with these brands for licensing IP. I've never done anything like that. Could you help me understand how does that process work when you approach them? How do you structure a deal? What does it look like to license a brand's existing IP? You start with a conversation, you know, it either comes inbound or outbound, however you get connected with that particular brand, you look for the folks that are involved in the licensing department, you structure a deal if it mutually makes sense to engage and the IP is a fit for your medium or platform. In this case, we're a toy company. So we're looking for toyetic IP, we're looking for things that would make sense as a toy. So naturally, there are certain brands that are very complementary to that. So you engage with the right licensing folks in that particular department see if it makes sense, come up with proposals of what the product, the end product would look like. And as you further engage, if it starts to really seem like it's a match, you get to terms and terms typically look like a mixture of a revenue share. So you'll do a percentage rev share and each brand can negotiate differently on that front. Some brands request what is called an MG, stands for minimum guarantee, which basically ensures the brand that there's some level of revenue coming in no matter what. So even if something doesn't hit an audience for whatever reason, the brand is still guaranteed X amount of dollars. The licensor has to make sure to, to pony up. And that's the parameters of it. And then you negotiate a two-year, three-year, four-year deal. I want to go back to the word. I've heard you say this before, Toyetic IP. In the licensing deals, are these people, I mean, I'm sure it might be different brand to brand, but how often are you interacting with I'm in charge of IP and I do toys and video games. And now you're the person showing up with NFTs versus dedicated Web3 strategies. I would say it's a good mixture of both. You see some companies that are setting up a specific team that's tasked 100%. That's their entire focus is Web3 and NFTs and digital products. Then you'll see other companies that they focus on licensing deals or video game deals. We interact with a lot of folks that are in video game licensing. So these big brands that do these video game deals, like how do you see your favorite brand end up on an iPhone game or an Xbox game? Oftentimes, we'll actually talk with the folks there because they in some ways have overlap with a digital product. Is it a digital good? Is it technically a game, especially if there's an interactive layer to it? So we can probably end up in one of three places, I would say, consumer products licensing team or the video game team, depending on how the company is structured. So it depends on the organization. It's probably worth rewinding back to the origin story here, because I can imagine in 2018, I think when you started, it probably was which department to go to. Now you're talking to all the departments, but maybe take us back to the early days where this whole idea came from and what it was like when you first started pitching this. Oh my gosh. I mean, we look completely insane. I mean, we still look completely <laughs> insane. Uh, we just looked even more insane in 2018. It's crazy just what three, four years can do. The way this whole thing came about was quite by chance. I'm a serial entrepreneur. My previous company was called Live Ninja based in Miami. We grew it to about 23 people. We raised a venture around from Comcast Ventures, City Ventures, a few local angels. We ran that company from 2012 to 2017. I sold that company in 2017 to IDT Telecom. And I had an earnout with IDT. Typically, you know, you sell your company, you got to do an earnout. So I was going through my earnout at IDT at the same time. I had two kids at that time. Now I have three, but at the time I had two. My daughter was six at the time. My son was five. They were obsessed with these things called LOL surprise toys. If you don't have kids or your listeners that do have kids or whatever, they, they know what these are. These are things that you buy 
20, 30 bucks, Target or Walmart. You don't know what's inside. You take them home, you open them up inside as a random toy. And some are more rare than others. Think of it in a way like a pack of basketball cards, but a toy version in essence. And my daughter was absolutely addicted to this stuff. I was spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on these toys that she would collect. At the same time, this was 2018. I've always been like an early adopter in tech, just looking into new trends and new things. And I'm a big Fred Wilson fan, Fred Wilson, Union Square Ventures. One day I get his blog post in my email sometime in 2018, I believe, around that time, maybe it was 2017, 2018. He talks about this new company that he invested in called Axiom Zen, and they're renaming to Dapper Labs. And they're coming up to this thing called CryptoKitties. And don't laugh, a digital cat on the blockchain, but trust me, digital collectibles will be a big thing one day. All I know is when Fred Wilson talks, you usually should listen. And of course, digital collectibles for me made a lot of sense because I grew up collecting baseball cards. Then I got into Pogs. If you remember Pogs back in the day. I do. Yeah. And like comic books and then became a gamer. So the idea of digital collectibles was really intriguing. And then Fred Wilson's making an investment. So I want to look deeper into it. So that was my first exposure to NFTs was a crypto kitty because Fred pointed it out. So I bought a few crypto kitties and just got interested in this idea of digital collectibles. At the same time, my daughter just kept buying more and more of these toys. So one day, I think as any like curious consumer entrepreneur would, I'm like, why the hell is she so addicted to things? Like, what is it about this product that makes her so addicted to it? So I look up the company that made it, a company called MGA based out of California. And New York Times had just did a profile piece on the CEO, Isaac. He's an incredible entrepreneur. And basically the reports all over the internet was just saying how much money LOL Surprise was making. It was like billions in revenue. And they became the hottest selling toy in the world five years in a row. And it was a surprise unboxing experience and YouTube unboxings were on the rise. So they really became the ultimate unboxing toy for YouTube. And that's what fueled their growth. So I was just fascinated from like a product standpoint. Like, oh my God, it's genius. Of course, you got my daughter hooked on it, et cetera. And one day I'm working from home. This was 2018. My daughter screams from the playroom with excitement. And she's like, oh my God, dad, come quick, come quick. I got it. I got the ultra rare. I got the ultra rare. And I go to see what she's doing. And she's holding up this gold, glittery plastic doll. And she looks at it for like 10 seconds. And then she throws it in the bin with all the other ones just to collect dust in the corner, the mountain of plastic. I thought to myself, she doesn't do anything with these things. Once she gets it and opens it, there's no utility for it. She doesn't do anything with them. It's just the chase. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, here's this multi-billion dollar segment of the toy industry that's predicated on collectability and scarcity and this unboxing experience. We can now do this digitally for the first time ever, thanks to this thing that Fred is talking about, this crypto kitty NFT thing. We can now do this digitally for the first time ever, thanks to this technology. So I asked my daughter, again, I'm a full-time employee at this point, but I'm always looking for side projects at nights and weekends and things like that, right? I always wanted to bond with my daughter on technology. So I asked my daughter, I said, sweetheart, what if I were to make you the digital version of these toys where you can collect them, chase after the rare ones, but then when you get them, you could actually do things with them, play games with them, interact with them in different ways. Would that be something you'd be interested in? And she was like, oh my God, of course, that'd be amazing. So again, of course, I could spend nights and weekends being a hobbyist. So nights and weekends, started building this little product, this little like hacky product. And I went to my old co-founders. And I pitched them the idea. And of course, they were excited to do another little side project. And then Emilio and Alfonso and I, my old co-founders at Live Ninja, we got together a little prototype. 
came up with the name. And then one day Emilio says, listen, this little side project of yours, it's cool and all, but if you really want to take it to the next level, I got a buddy of mine that I used to work with at Disney. He now works at Konami. We could bring him on and he could be another co-founder and we could really make these things fully interactive. So that's when Freddie joined the team and we created this little prototype, this little iPhone app called Cryptoys. You would purchase the toy and then you would get a little cube and then you would spin around the cube. You would tap on it, it would unbox a random toy and like Victoria's toys. Some were more rare than others. Really fun project just to work on in your spare time. It wasn't anything that we thought like, oh my God, this is going to be a multi-billion dollar business. We just thought this would be something cool for our kids. And we were just passionate to build something that pushes the future of toys forward. But dude, we look super stupid because <laughs> nobody cared about NFTs at all in 2018. So I go around town in Miami and of course, folks know me and they're like, hey, Will, you just sold Live Ninja. Like, what's, what's the next big move? What are you working on? And uh, I'd be like, I don't know yet, but let me show you this digital panda that I'm tinkering with. And they'll be like, what the hell? Like, what is this? But we believed in it because our kids loved it. Our kids were like, oh my God, what's up with Cryptoys? When's the next version coming out? What are you guys going to do next? So we just had fun building for them from 2018 to 2020. And then obviously the market took off in a big way in late 2020 with NBA Top Shot really being a catalyst. Again, Dapper Labs really pushing the whole scene forward. And in early 2021, because we were quietly making progress just nights and weekends on the side, we had a prototype to show. So VCs started coming in inbound and interested folks that wanted to maybe do a licensing deal. And I was like, hey, guys, look, I knew there was something here. I still believe in this. If I could raise a little bit of money, are you all going to quit your jobs and do this full time with me? And they didn't believe that I could raise the money (laughs) for a digital toy concept. So they're like, sure, Will, you let us know. We put together a round rather quickly and we're off into the races. So we started full-time operations of the company in, I would say, April 2021, incorporated on-chain studios as the parent company for the product. And JT, who's now co-founder of on-chain studios, he joined right at that time as we incorporated the company and off into the races from there, got some funding and just kept making progress. But yeah, from 2018 to 2020, the only believers were our kids. That's an important cohort if you're going to have someone believe in you, I think. No better than your kids. Oh, 100%. With that original version, were those NFT-based or was that a centralized on-app type experience or were you already putting those on a blockchain? It was all like a testnet app. So we added a little mobile prototype and we were just testing out. We were debating. At the time, like Flow wasn't even a thing back then. There was really just Ethereum and CryptoKitties brought down Ethereum, which was the catalyst that led to Flow. So we were just tinkering with it. And then we were like, well, we'll pick the right option for us as things mature more, because clearly it didn't feel like ETH was scalable at the time for a product that needed to scale to millions of people if you're going to be a digital toy company. So we're just iterating and tinkering and and really the front end software and the stuff that we had to get right, because that's the core. The core experience is really what is going to matter most if you're trying to onboard mainstream users. The blockchain of choice, like I know we're part of a bunch of group chats and things like that, that, you know, everybody's debating on which chain, which chain. And it's a great debate to have. But if your user experience isn't phenomenal and people don't care about your product, it's all moot points. So you got to nail that first. And that's what we focused on with the initial prototype. Yeah, I can see why you fit Mags's investment profile so much of how she wants people to build for the masses, not just build for on-chain. 
Tell me more about the Cryptoys pitch back then or even what it is today. You guys are focused on toys, gaming, entertainment, but what's the vision for what the goal of this company is? Yeah, so the goal is to build the world's premier digital toy company and really reimagine what the concept of a toy is. A lot of people like to say, when they look at Cryptoys behind the scenes and they see that everything we're building, it's kind of like if a toy company like Mattel and a gaming company like Nintendo had a baby and it was born on the blockchain, it would be Cryptoys. There's three pillars to the company. The first pillar is toys and collectibles. The second pillar is gaming. And the third is entertainment. So we're focusing on, on really building across those three pillars. Much like if you look at Mattel, like that's a great analogy because Mattel in the early 80s, they wanted to create a medieval IP toy line and they created Masters of the Universe and they created not just the toys, but they created an animated series to go along with it. So people could eat Cinnamon Toast Crunch at 9 a.m. on a Saturday, watch the cartoon and then buy the toy or vice versa, buy the toy, watch the series and the flywheel can continue. It's a smart way to build IP and franchises and and things like that. So we're doing that, adding gaming to the mix. And that's why I think a lot of people compare us to Nintendo, because Nintendo also started with gaming. Then they got into entertainment, Mario movies and cartoons and things like that. Then they built toys, Mario Hot Wheels, etc. And the flywheel goes. We're kind of like a combination of those elements. And that's really the main focus. But we're also reimagining what does it mean to have a toy? and What are the limits and the lack of limits that you could have if all of a sudden things in the physical world, the constraints of the physical world were removed. So like when you and I were kids, you will remember you would unbox a toy, an action figure, and you would hold it in your hand and fly it through the air and pretend like it was flying. Or you would give it a voice and you would pretend like it was talking to your other toys. Well, what are the things that we can do in the digital world? We can make all those things reality. Like what are the cool things that you can do if physics aren't a limitation and plastic manufacturing isn't a limitation? You can create some really cool experiences but they're toyetic through the lens of like getting a toy, taking it out of the packaging, putting it in unique situations and environments. The goal is to push the toy industry forward into new and exciting ways. Do you have kids, by the way, Eric? I do. I have four kids. Four kids, man. Congrats. How, what are their ages? <laughs> Seven, five, and two. We have twins. I tell people we didn't get four kids on purpose, but we have four kids. I feel very lucky to have four kids. I was wanted four, but I always thought I was going to have three. So I got twins at the end. That's a beautiful thing, really. That is awesome. You'll see this with your kids, I'm sure. They're gravitating to digital products, iPads and TVs and whatnot, shows, and they're very digitally savvy. It's not a physical or digital competition. It's very much physical and digital. It's different mediums of play depending on the moment. If they have a friend over, sure, they'll want to play with physical toys. But if they're by themselves, but they still want to connect with other people, They could jump on a game like Roblox and all of a sudden be playing with people from all over the world. My daughter's just turned 10. If you gave her the choice, you held out your hand and be like, give you a physical item or I'll give you a redemption for a digital item. Which one would you pick? She'd have a tough choice with that. To her, it's not an either or conversation. And I would actually think that she would pick the digital one. In in many cases, she has picked a digital one. And when I asked her why, she goes, Again, because the physical item, I could only play with people that are here and now, but the digital item, I could play with infinite number of people and show it to infinite number of people around the world. So it's really interesting seeing this next generation grow up in this world, and they're so digitally savvy. I celebrated Hanukkah last year, and when I asked Victoria what she wanted for her big eighth night of Hanukkah, you know, the eighth night's the big night. The first seven nights are the tchotchkes and the little things, but the eighth night's like the big night. Like when I was a kid, I got a bicycle or like a Super Nintendo, right? That was like the big gift of the year. I asked my daughter, sweetheart, what do you want for your eighth night of Hanukkah? 
She goes, oh my God, dad, I know what I want. She runs upstairs. She grabs her iPad. She wants me to purchase an in-app purchase for $99 in her favorite iPad game to unlock a bundle of digital items and wearables. $100? $100. There was a big item pack of digital wearables for her favorite game. And of course, I was fascinated by this, but also made a lot of sense. What would have been nice is if I would have been able to say, okay, sweetheart, that's awesome. Happy to buy this bundle of items for Hanukkah. But why don't we go ahead and sell all the other digital items that you purchased over the years that you don't play with anymore? Or better yet, how about you donate them to charity or to a kid that can't afford it? Right now, she's unable to do either with those things. For the world that our kids are growing up in, that are much more digitally savvy, them owning these items is such an obvious, for me, it's like a foregone conclusion that that's where we're heading. I would bet everything I had that ownership and digital ownership is going to be a huge part of these kids' future you know, in the coming years. Yeah, this is a topic I was excited for you to kind of elaborate more on, which is this. I don't know if this is under the, I wrote it down, the COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule, or if this is securities rule. But when your NFTs were issued, did you have to be 18 years older to buy them? Yes. Let's start with why can you not sell these to kids today? The truth is you obviously could sell digital items to people of all ages, like at Roblox and Fortnite and all stuff. You just have to have the right parameters in place and set up your software and your processes and your tracking and what's the data you're collecting. All this stuff has to be like really ironed out. Obviously, we're a startup. We're getting things out to market. We're iterating very fast. It made sense for us to go right to market and make sure, okay, let's serve, first of all, people over the age of 18 because we're doing a bunch of stuff. We're creating accounts. They're signing up for terms and services and conditions. Effectively, they're creating wallets on the back end. There's accounts and things that are done on the blockchain. So starting at that point over the age of 18 just made sense for us to get to market initially. But obviously, we're building a toy company, right? So we want to serve people of all ages. So actually, it's coming out in the coming months. We're doing a really, really large lift and doing something very thoughtfully around what we call guardian controls the next step of parental controls. And what you'll see coming to cryptoids here in the next few months, the best way to describe it simply is think of it like Netflix style or like Disney Plus. You have your master account where you log in and you can watch whatever you want, any content and purchase new content. And then you have the sub accounts, the child accounts, where you can go in and have really tailored experiences for people of that age when limit the things that they can do on the platform and enable other sub accounts and whatnot. So You have to be really mindful every step that you take onboarding people under the age of 18. This has to be really well thought out. A lot of safeguards in place that you got to make sure you do. And we've been fortunate to work with a lot of these groups that are doing the different ratings and the compliancy for people, younger audiences and younger ages. It sounds very impressive that you're following this path and trying to do it the right way. What stops a nine-year-old from going on OpenSea and buying an NFT today? Nothing's really stopping people from entering a different age in the year of like, what's your date of birth? That's why you see KYC and other aspects becoming really, really important in some platforms because you need to do identity verification, show your driver's license and things like that for certain aspects of Web3. But there are some platforms like social platforms. People have been underage signing up for Facebook, which I think was, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was 13 and up for a while. There were nine-year-olds signing up for Facebook, I'm sure, just by lying about their age. Facebook's not doing any KYC checks. So the whole industry needs to grow up, I think, and make sure this is a safe place for people of all ages, but also do it in the right way and 
there's a fine balance between making sure that Web3 is accessible and intuitive and easy to onboard and also doing it in a compliant way because there's so much financial aspects of Web3 that you don't want to jumble up together in these consumer platforms. So you just got to do it thoughtfully. So sticking about your example, like the financialization of it, is it that also in this compliant way where you're keeping all these walled gardens, can people under 18 buy and sell digital goods freely or are there restrictions around that as well? Well, in crypto, is, you have to be 18 or up to use the platform. That's part of our terms and conditions. That's part of our sign-up process. We are not supporting activity from a primary account standpoint for people under the age of 18. Now, coming in the next few months, you'll be able to access it, people under the age of 18, as sub-accounts, as long as you have a guardian that creates the account for you. And when you introduce that, could people be able to buy and sell these things from each other? It's up to the guardian. The guardian at the end of the day can approve transactions that the sub-account would like to do, whether it's, hey, dad, somebody's offering 50 bucks for this toy. It's really the father that is really authorizing that transaction. It's not the sub-account really making that happen. It's just the way you think about the account structure. Interesting. Let's move on to gaming because I'd be really curious. This is an area I've been learning a lot more about lately. There clearly was pushback. I mean, I think a lot of people will say that they got involved in Fortnite or they saw Fortnite and they saw skins and NFTs just clicked for them. But we've had this big pushback from the gaming industry towards the digital ownership transferability components, not just from the brands, but actually from the people playing. What's your take on that? As far as pushback from gamers, I can relate to this because I identify as a gamer myself. The thing about people who play video games and their relationship with the studios who make the games, it's a very tense relationship because money grabbing and schemes to take more money out of gamers has been a thing since the industry was created. So what happened over the years is that gamers become typically adverse to anything that seems like it's trying to extract additional money out of their pockets. At the end of the day, Gamers do not play games to make money. They do not see games as a financial instrument. They play games because they enjoy playing games and they want to have fun. It's the whole idea of a game. So first off, crypto coming into their world and saying, now you're playing to earn is just completely adverse to the idea of gaming and having fun. I don't play to earn. Sure, if there's an added benefit of me having fun and I'm owning these items, I think that's an interesting conversation to have. But as an industry, we did ourselves no favors by labeling everything play to earn, play to earn, play to earn. That really, I think, set everything off on a bad foot. But we've seen this movie before with gaming. About 10 years or so ago, free to play was this new concept that came about where instead of charging for the game up front, it would say free, you download the game, and then to complete the level or to get to the next step, or to upgrade your character to keep going, you would then get small microtransactions throughout the game. Gamers, when this concept came out, it was the biggest revolt to the gaming studios that we've seen in the space because it felt like such a money grab. It felt like just another lever that the gaming studios are putting out to extract more money out of their core audience. But what happened was, after a few years, It takes time. It's not an overnight thing. It's like three to five years later, gamers started to realize that free-to-play is actually a great thing. They could try games out for free. They could realize 
they want to progress and move forward in that game, they could charge them just a little bit of money here and there. And then also the studios found ways to do free to play right before it was like, okay, the first level is for free. And now it's 20 bucks to access the rest of the game. And then they're like, okay, well, that didn't work out so well. How could we take the free to play concept, which is good at the foundational level, but make it incrementally better? That doesn't really give value to the gamer and our end customer at the end of the day. So after about five years of tinkering, all of a sudden free to play is not just something that's welcomed, it's become like almost industry standard, especially in mobile gaming. So these things take time, but what started off as a complete resistance and a whole customer base that was allergic to a concept, eventually with time and with education and with refinement, it became standard. And I think you're going to see the exact same curve with Web3 and NFTs and gaming. You're going to see an initial allergy. No, I don't want that. It's crypto. I don't want anything like that in my game, blah, blah, blah. This is a cash grab, et cetera. And then they're going to realize five years later, wait a second, all the time that I just spent playing that game, now I actually own the items that I earn playing those games. Why wouldn't I want that? Why not? Like, of course, if you give me the option for one to be actually digital assets that I own and ones that a gaming company owns somewhere in cyberspace, they'll pick the former every single time. So I think if I had to guess, we're on that same curve with Web3 and NFTs. Where are you guys of your pillars? So you have the collectibles, you're launching NFTs already. You've got more coming out. You've got the Mattel Masters of the Universe, which, by the way, I love the nostalgia to the 80s. And I definitely had the He-Man lunchbox. Where are you on the gaming front? We're about to launch our first minigame. We have a mobile app coming out here in the coming months called Cryptoids Bootcamp. It's going to be available on iOS. It's effectively like a game launcher. And the first game is going to be included in that game launcher. It's called Zoofo Escape. You'll be able to pick your Cryptoid, jump in a spaceship and fly around and a mobile platformer. So we're really excited to get that out here in the next coming months. And then we have a bunch of other games in development and other interactive experiences. That's our goal is to keep updating that app with new micro experiences and mini games. You always have fresh things to do. Our entry into gaming is going to happen here shortly in the coming months. That's really exciting. I liked how you made the point that for mainstream adoption, which maybe you can touch on your views on that, that it's not about the chain. So maybe we'll start with mainstream, but then I would like to dive into how you do think about someone who's building a company and how that backend right now does seem critical if you're building on Flow or competitors are building on Wax or if someone's on Ethereum, what that actually means to the competitive landscape and adoption. I think about this in a little bit of a different way. And as much as I love this space and preach about Web3 all day, and of course, I'm incredibly bullish on where this is going. I think we're overestimating how important the chain is for the end consumer. We know the benefits of it from a ownership standpoint, provenance standpoint, liquidity standpoint, composability standpoint. We can go on for days about all this stuff. Tons of benefits. The thing that we have to realize is that consumers, all they want is great user experiences. And if you don't have great user experiences, I don't care if you're on the best chain known to man that checks every single box out there, nobody's going to come back to the application. What I believe in general as a hierarching theory is that users really care about a few things. Number one, they care about, is the user experience phenomenal? B, do I have true ownership and liquidity of these assets? Meaning like if I want to sell it, I can sell it and somebody's going to buy it in a reasonable amount of time. And C, are the fees low? Are they not prohibitive, these fees? 
that we've experienced in the past. If you could achieve those three things, I don't think the blockchain of choice really matters at the end of the day for the end consumer. Because let's visualize something real quick. Starbucks Odyssey, Reddit, both of these big companies and brands have dabbled into NFTs. If you go onto these products, which I think they're doing it the right way, those two examples, you go to those products, you have a dedicated experience that's focused on a specific user base and a specific use case for that moment. When I'm in the Starbucks Odyssey app, a specific use case, when I'm in Reddit, specific use case, those are white labeled at the end of the day digital collectible slash NFT experiences, you don't know. It's Polygon on the back end, but the end consumer doesn't know it's Polygon unless they really dive deeper and see what's going on on the back end, et cetera. These are just experiences at the end of the day that are native to that brand and platform. So Eric, imagine, let's take World of Warcraft as an example, very popular video game. A lot of Web3 ideas and games have been based around. Imagine that gamers woke up tomorrow morning, they log into World of Warcraft, and there was a news bulletin right there in the game. It said, announcement, World of Warcraft is now on chain. Everything is now on the blockchain and you have full ownership of every single asset on the platform. Those gamers are going to say, okay, that's awesome. That's cool. I've heard about this blockchain thing and I'm already playing this game. Now I own it. Great. They don't care if it's Ethereum, Polygon. Blizzard could have created Blizzard Chain or World of Warcraft Chain at that moment. Why? Because World of Warcraft as an ecosystem already has so much activity and usage that if you want liquidity to sell to another World of Warcraft user, doesn't matter if that NFT is Wax or Flow or Blizzard Chain. It's not going to matter at the end of the day because there's so much activity on that specific platform and use case. And that's where I believe mainstream adoption is going to native platforms. They're gonna live on native platforms inside of ecosystems where there's already activity that exists around a specific use case. What we think of kind of Web3 and NFTs is we think of here's the Ethereum ecosystem, here's the Solana ecosystem, here's the Flow ecosystem, and everybody should care about every aspect of every single application and game that's going on because we're all in that same ecosystem. Well, really, it's about the game, the app, the use case. So like when I see Starbucks Odyssey, when I see Reddit, those are to me signals of where this is heading for mainstream adoption. At the end of the day, the chain is hidden to the user. It's a very native experience from a consumer behavior standpoint that's familiar to them. And the magic of the blockchain is all happening on the back end. And it's only if you want to dig deeper take self-custody of the asset, move it across different aspects of the web that I think the other conversations matter. But the onboard the masses conversation and what will be the majority of people's first taste of the blockchain, in my opinion, the way that I see it unfolding, it's going to be through native experiences where the blockchain is just in the background and it's not at the forefront. I think that's super interesting. And I agree with almost all of it. I think where I get tripped up a bit, and I want to get your take, is that if I think about it as an analogy that blockchains are like clouds and that you could build on Amazon or Google or Azure, nobody cares what your application is built on. It's probably being used in cloud services. And even though they're not interoperable and they take different engineering talents, you could move from one to the other. It's not easy. You could do all this stuff. The other model I have in my head and no one's probably old enough to think about this stuff, but when video cassettes came out and you had the VHS Betamax debate, 
And if you had built the best Betamax VCR, that was awesome. And it was a great user experience, but Betamax, the technology lost, it was more of a crucial decision. And so I think what I'm hearing from you is your mental model is this is just like Amazon, Azure, and Google. Doesn't matter what you build on, Eric, build the best application and move to whoever wins. And I'm just in my head wondering if the technology has any relation to foundational technology that if you build on the wrong chain, even though you have a great application, there's more of a friction there that's being caused. I think it really depends on the type of application that you're building. Again, it's just not one size fits all. Like, I think one of the biggest benefits of the blockchain is composability. So the aspect that you can take stuff across all of Web3 and have different use cases with it. You own the asset. It can just go with you into different applications. And you can use your asset here in one game. You can take it. It's in your wallet. You can go to another game. There's all these different cool things around composability that I think absolutely proves that point. My counter argument to that is I don't think a lot of people care about it as much. I think people like specific applications for specific things as part of their day. There's only a certain amount of hours that people have to game and be on the internet and things like that and have social experiences. And I still think that we're a ways away from really truly unlocking the true vision of composability from like a consumer behavior perspective and taking things and having things work seamlessly in two different applications that are built from two very different developers it's like the sandbox thing, the voxels and all that stuff. would love to see that vision come to fruition. How long is it going to take to come to fruition? We don't know yet. At the same time, look at Roblox. Roblox is just absolutely crushing it because they have created a very defined user experience with a specific passionate user base around delivering value and entertainment for their users. And I just believe that there's a lot of this tech that we're talking about that has a tremendous amount of potential and there's no doubt the future. We can't get it conflated with what users care about now. And like if onboarding the masses is this big thing in the industry, which it is, there's not a day that goes by you and me, Eric, that we don't hear that. We got to onboard the masses. How are we going to onboard the masses? There's onboarding the masses 10 years from now and there's onboarding, like how are we going to onboard people in 2023 and onboard people in 2024? My just response to that is the stuff that we talked about that a lot of blockchain makes its case for on certain chains might not be the reasons that people join in 2023 and 2024. I think we need to take more baby steps to getting there instead of going from step one to step seven. Oh, 100%. Why does crypto always need a blockchain at all? Why not just store it on a server and keep track of everything, make an absolutely delightful user experience where people can go on App OIS, they can download their application, they can open their toy, they can do all the things. Why use a chain at all? That aspect, we truly believe, and this is one of the fundamental arguments for blockchain, is that it's verifiable ownership, true verifiable ownership, that for whatever reason, you will always have at any point, no matter what happens to the centralized company that produced the asset. As a collector, for example, collect baseball cards, some of the first baseball cards that were ever created were created by cigarette companies. Those old school looking cards, they were made by cigarette companies back in the day. Those companies don't exist anymore. They don't produce baseball cards. A lot of the most valuable antique and old school toys were created by brands that don't exist anymore, yet it's still valuable because somebody has it, it's verified that it's legit, and you can sell it, there's liquidity in that market. So I think of it the same way. If I'm creating the world's digital toy company, I want to make sure that people that believe in the brand and that are spending money, and it's a leap to think of 
toys, I've always thought about toys as physical. Now I'm going to think of them as something digital, even though that I can't hold it. That's a leap that you need a lot of people to make. The blockchain is one layer of security that gives people the assurance that this is your asset, even no matter what happens with Cryptoys as a centralized company. If Cryptoys, hopefully it doesn't, hopefully we keep crushing it. But if something happens to Cryptoys, you still have that asset. It's on the blockchain. You can do whatever you want with it in a lot of different ways, but you still have that. I think that's important to a lot of people today that are early adopters for Cryptoys, that are a lot of people in the Web3 NFT space. But then also, as we educate more people about why blockchain matters, the idea is to get people to realize that. And then we have to obviously stand on that core ethos and give them true ownership of said asset. So we kind of got to practice what we preach there. It gets me a little back to like thinking about, does the chain matter again? I love having this debate with you just because if I'm worried about the provenance and it mattering and cryptoids will continue to crush it, but that what chain is going to be there in 10 years to keep that record that I still own that thing. And I don't want to be owning something that might not have as much of a chance of being around. It's on the flow blockchain. So as long as flow stays around, as long as the flow blockchain stays around, then you have that asset. Now, if the flow blockchain decides to unwind for whatever reason, they've showcased that that hopefully will never, ever happen. But let's say in the doomsday scenario that it is, then it's on us to migrate them to a different solution and bridge them to another solution that they could have true ownership of said asset. So fundamentally, and we very much identify ourselves as Web 2.5 company. We love aspects of the blockchain. We believe in the ownership aspects of it. We believe in a lot of the composability and portability aspects of it. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure we create awesome experiences for consumers and create fun experiences for consumers. So give them the ownership where they can collect these things, much like people collect Funko Pops in their rooms and in their homes, but also create awesome experiences that give them the utility to do so. So I'm not a Web3 blockchain maxi by any means. I believe in the core technology and it has to have a use case today and a use case five years from now or 10 years from now. Or if it doesn't, then I would totally, like you said, we would have just created another digital platform that was completely centralized. But I think the core premise of collectability in collecting digitally doesn't really stand up with centralized companies. You want to build a collectibles company. I would never have bought an NBA card, a pack of NBA digital cards ever as a consumer if it was through panini.com and they weren't on the blockchain. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't make no sense to me. But seeing that they're on the blockchain, it just gives me a level of assurance as a consumer that I can track how many of these were created, that they're not going to just create a million more tomorrow if they feel like it. And in a lot of aspects, Cryptoids is a collectible like that. You have to have mint numbers, you have to have serials, you have to show people how many they are. And for that, the blockchain is a great way to show them that and give them that ownership. Yeah, 100%. Getting to know you, you're very mission-driven. I'm curious to get your take on what this whole experience has been like going from a tech startup to a still tech startup, but very toy focused. This is a new industry. What has been kind of your greatest learnings about this space in general? The toy space is incredible. Just in general, you're focusing on a world of happiness and color and joy and exuberance. And it's really exciting to wake up in the morning and work on things like that. Like how could we bring more joy to people and How could we deliver just cool experiences and bring smiles to faces around the world? And at the end of the day, 
selfishly or unselfishly, I love doing something that my daughter and my kids are proud of. And they love to learn more about what their dad is building and how they can get involved and be exposed to entrepreneurship. I think the toy industry is filled with a bunch of really amazing people. It's not like any other industry where there's not some bad actors. Every industry has their fair share. But the majority of people, if you choose to work in toys and gaming, you're a certain type of person. And more so than not, they're really, really good humans. Just meeting the folks like the folks at Mattel and the folks at a lot of the licensing partners that we're working with and that we're set to announce has been just absolutely a blast. And again, dude, if you told me that I found a crystal ball, I looked in the crystal ball, you're going to be working on cryptoys for the rest of your life. I'd be thrilled with that. I just love the job. I love building for the next generation. And frankly, I'm a kid at heart. If you look at my desk, dude, I got Ninja Turtles everywhere. I got Baby Groot over here. I know this is an audio podcast, but I got Boba Fett chilling over there and Spider-Man's over there. Like, dude, I'm just a big kid. (laughs) That's awesome. I think we all are. It's a great place to end it. We close the same question. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? So for the next six months, there's a lot of like short-term stuff that we want to get out. Obviously, our games, you buy these toys now, what can you do with them? Uh, There's a lot of cool stuff with these little micro interactions. AR is a big feature that we're launching this year that we're really, really excited about. We're building out a native marketplace so you could have some cool kind of trading experiences and other things to do on the platform. A big licensing partner that we're excited to announce pretty shortly. Big partnership news coming soon. That'll be sometime in the next few months here that I'm really excited about. And then just continually pushing forward on the product. Guardian controls, like I mentioned, allowing people under the age of 18 to join the platform safely. So that's within the next six months. In the next six years, very excited to really double down on our vision and mission to kind of create the world's premier digital toy company and kind of redefine what a toy can actually do. A lot of people don't know this, but we have multiple team members that focus exclusively on NLP and AI at Cryptoys. I'm fascinated with the idea of having conversations with these toys back and forth and interacting with them in different ways. A lot of people don't realize just how native consumer-facing AI is to kids and the next generation. These Alexas and Google Homes and series that are in all of our houses that kids are born into, they use them very natively. My kids every single day ask, Alexa, tell me a joke or play this on Spotify. And I just triggered Alexa. So she might say something here. In a minute. I was just going to say, I think you just <laughs> lit my office on fire. <laughs> I believe it or not, my youngest son is two. His first word was Adada, trying to activate Alexa because he heard us oh, uh, talking to it so much. We really need to understand just how native it is for these kids to have these AI assistants in their house. But at the end of the day, they're faceless. There's no visual. T- you don't have really developing any cool experiences or relationships with them. So really excited. What if you were chatting with E-Man or Skeletor? What if you could have the same Alexa Siri experiences with these toys and they can tell you different things and interact with them or cheer you up if you had a bad day, those kind of things. So that's a big focus for us in the coming years here. And we're actually going to release the first experience around NLP and AI. The goal is sometime this year and then just keep doubling down from there on that. That's really cool. Will, thanks for joining me. I always enjoy chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you having me on. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 